Nordic countries to talk about sustainability? That's the question we're asking in this, the first episode of Think Nordic, the podcast from the Nordic Council of Ministers, presented by me, Richard Myron. We're asking this question at a particularly appropriate time and place. We're here at the COP24, the global climate change conference taking place in Katowice, Poland. In this series, we're examining how and indeed if the Nordic experience can help address pressing global challenges around the world. Other episodes will be looking at gender equality and food. If you want to learn more about these issues, subscribe to Think Nordic on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on the website of the Nordic Council of Ministers. Now, why would we turn to the Nordics to learn about sustainable environmental practice? According to Catherine Richardson, who's the head of the Sustainability Science Center at the University of Copenhagen, they're well positioned to be an example to others. In the 2030 agenda, the Nordic countries are very uniquely placed. Right now, if you do a dashboard and see how different countries are in relation to the SDGs, the Nordic countries come in very high on the list. That means that we actually do have solutions or approaches or institutions, infrastructures that, that do work in these situations. And we can, we can export, loan, help others to use these solutions as well. That's all well and good. But the news elsewhere isn't promising, as we've been hearing here in Katowice over the past week. Studies indicate that global warming is actually accelerating faster than previous estimates. So in the face of this, what can the Nordic countries with their relatively small population and limited global clout do? I'm joined by three guests to discuss this. We have Connie Herdegaard from Denmark. She was the first EU Commissioner for Climate Action and also a former host of the COP15 in Copenhagen in 2009. Johan Rockström is also with us. He's recently taken up a position in Germany at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research. That's one of the leading European centers studying climate change and sustainability. Johan was previously the director of the Stockholm Resilience Institute, where he oversaw major research projects into the effects of human activity on the planet. Last, but by no means least, is Maciej Bukowski, the president and head of research at the Wise Europa think tank in Warsaw. Maciej is an economist who's written widely on development issues in Poland and on the challenges for the developed world in the 21st century. Starting with you, Connie, you've been here before with other climate change conferences, which you've described in the past as hating, but also being necessary. So what's the role of the Nordics here on this issue? Are they a voice in the wilderness or a clarion call for others? No, I think what the Nordics can do is to show some of the solutions. We have done that when it comes to energy efficiency, when it comes to waste treatment, when it comes to renewables, just to mention a few examples. So there are specific examples where I think we have something to offer and also do it in a way that gives acceptance with your citizens. Right, so the Nordics do have a role. Johan, uh, you have talked about the crossing of thresholds, that we are in danger of crossing thresholds that we may not be able to recross 
and that we could be causing irreversible damage to the, uh, to the planet. The Nordics is a relatively small part of the world with a relatively small population. What can such a region do in the face of such a huge challenge? So, so following on, on Connie here, I would strongly argue that the Nordics have a disproportionate large influence in the world of climate change. We are open, modern, export-oriented societies that also were the starting point showing that decoupling emission of greenhouse gases from good economic development can go hand in hand. We have some of the most livable capitals in the world attracting business and employees and young talent. So we can be a role model for the world, and I think that's actually how, how the Nordics work. It's a reference point for much of the innovation and pathways to the future. So when it comes to avoiding disastrous tipping points, I think we should also think of positive tipping points, how the Nordics could start a domino influence of other countries adopting, as Connie says, different kind of practices on technologies. But look, for example, at Sweden that adopted a price on carbon of 100 euros per ton of carbon dioxide in 1990. And it hasn't uh, led to any jean on the streets. Madche, outside the Nordics, the view from outside the Nordics, here in Poland there is heavy dependence upon coal. You've heard both from Johan and from Connie. Is there something that Poland can use, utilize, follow from the Nordics? Certainly. Uh, I believe that Denmark is a very good example from many perspectives. Denmark actually, regarding the energy sector, has already switched its power mix twice. First in 1980s, after the oil crisis, then going to, for coal very, very fast, and then from coal to wind. Yeah, so this is an example, good example, that you can do this very fast and, and survive, let's say so. Yeah? So this, that, that many are afraid. What is going to happen if we change what we are used to? And Denmark is an example that you can change and nothing happens. Yes, it can be very good for your economy. Then we have example of Sweden. Sweden with these public sector reforms in 1980s as well, in early 1990s, that created an efficient state, state that can deliver. And I believe in general, in my country, Nordic countries have very good publicity. Finland means innovation, Sweden means very efficient public sector. Denmark means uh, means very progressive state that goes for the power sector of wind fastest in the world. Yeah? So, and then we have Nordic design, which Poles love, actually. And IKEA is, uh, Poland, I believe, is a very, the, the best market for IKEA in Europe. So three relatively upbeat outlooks here. I mean, what you're saying, that the Nordics can offer positive lessons to others. We've been canvassing opinions on the issue of sustainability. Obviously, people have different approaches depending on where they come from and different viewpoints and different concerns. Let's hear what some voices that we've gathered, what they have to say. My name is Lindsay Riley and I'm from Aruba. In Aruba, it's pretty horrible. I was never really environmentally conscious until I moved away from Aruba because in Aruba, people don't really pay attention to the environment. They don't really care. They just don't recycle at all. They basically throw away their garbage outside of their backyard. So people don't really pay attention there. I think people don't pay attention about the environment because Aruba is so small and we're not properly educated in it. We don't know what the implications are of not recycling, for instance. Uh, my name is Majad and I'm from Italy. Italy is very different because cities like Rome, Florence, uh, Naples, we have a lot of nature in our cities. And that's why our city's air is very clean. So we have a lot of trees, we have a lot of parks. 
and uh, most people recycle. Most people, we have uh, a lot of recycling bins around Rome. My name is Tessa and I'm from Canada. I think it's still very polluted. Like we have uh, the Great Lakes, which people don't even go swimming in because they're so polluted. So I've had someone visit me from the UK and gone in and I've been like, no, don't do that, it's disgusting. So people know it's polluted, but they don't attribute it to their personal actions as much. People say, oh, uh, it's someone else's problem. You know, me doing this small thing won't be a big deal. Connie, uh, to turn to you first, we heard there of Lindsay from Aruba. She's saying there isn't an awareness there amongst people. How do you introduce change? Should it come from the top down or the bottom up? It's a mix. It has to be very close to citizens so that they can see specific solutions. But you also have to have regulation. You also have to have politics. You have to have somebody to take care of the structural things. So when, as a citizen, I'm ready to do something, it should not be too difficult to do the right stuff. And I should not be treated as a political and economic idiot if I do the right thing. So you could say what well, we also have had in the Nordics, and I think that it goes for all of us, that is that we have had a tradition for putting a tax on the things you did not want more of. In other words, it has meant something whether you saved energy or not. If you saved energy, you could also save money. If you really prioritized renewables, we could create jobs. I mean, that's not just theory. In Denmark, that's a country of around 5 million citizens, but we have created 70,000 production jobs in the green, clean sector. No other sectors have created that many jobs in the last 20 or 30 years. And I think that means a lot when people can see, wow, this is not piece of cake, this is not easy, but it makes sense because in the end, we also create jobs, new jobs that replace the old jobs that disappear, and it creates exports because we have good products that we can sell. So people see that this is not just philanthropy or feeling good. It's also something that pays off for society. I think it's important that you have all these ingredients there. In essence, incentivizing people see the worth of changing the way they live or the intervention of the state to make them behave in a different way. Yeah, Johan mentioned that Sweden since the early 90s had a price on carbon when nobody else had and also since 90, mid-90s we had that in Denmark. And I'm not saying that to brag about our high taxation systems or anything like that, but it just means something and it means something to industry because if it costs to waste energy, for instance, then it pays off to invest in cleaner and greener and more efficient solutions. And I think to use the cost structure, use pricing, use tariffs, that is very, very important. And at least you have, of course, to stop subsidizing the wrong thing. And that is also something we have in common in the Nordics, that that is not what we are doing. So Johan, to pick up on Connie's point, she's talking about the importance of action from above to change behaviors from below. You've spoken, though, about the importance of institutions as a primary motor for change. Tell me exactly what you mean and how you see that as happening. Something that one has to recognize, I think, is that the success in the Nordics in terms of you know, being at the front of delivering on the sustainable development goals and on the climate agenda, even though even the Nordics are going too slow, it's at least at the forefront in the world. I would argue that has a lot to do with our trust in our institutions in society. So it's not necessarily so much about that we are some kind of uh, 
have a higher degree of awareness of the environment and some kind of better ability to act on the environment specifically. But when a country in the Nordic collects the highest income taxes per capita across the world, there is a higher degree of trust among its citizens that that money will not disappear, but will be reinvested in welfare for society. Even though even in the Nordics there are discussions here, but I think there's a relative high degree of trust in the institutional fabric in society, which I think matters a lot, which means that it's easier for a citizen to feel more comfortable and kind of trust when the sustainable development goals have been adopted. They are now infiltrating across all sectors in society in a way that uh, citizens, you know, not necessarily are very engaged with, but on the other hand, they don't go, again, they don't go to the streets and protest against it because it, there is a, a relatively high degree of, uh, of trust in, in the societal structure we have. And that is particular in a way to the Nordics. It doesn't necessarily I think, exist. I think that's part of what we could call a part of the Nordic model, that there's been so long time of building gradually societies where you actually have a reasonable level of, of trust in, in how your, your societal structures work. I don't know if you agree to that, Connie. But. Yes, but also to say that it did not come just out of the blue. We are not born green. I mean, I remember in my childhood, we had open landfills. We had yellow smock stakes, you know, coming out. You won't see that today. Why? Because policymaker went in and said, we must regulate that, we must go in dialogue with industry, what can be done, how can it be used to develop society. So it's just to say that it also takes the long haul and to start with not being afraid of politics and the dialogue between the private sector and the public sector. I think that is also part of the Nordic approach. Just to say that, so Stockholm is worse than uh, Amsterdam on cycling, Rome is better than uh, Gothenburg on plastics. The UK is actually better on climate than most of the Nordics. So it's not as if the Nordics are best on every element of this. It's just that on average, these are societies that have been struggling for so long that they've come to a point where it's relatively resilient in terms of its ability to take environment seriously. If I can turn to you, Matcha, we heard there in the Vox Pops this woman from Canada speaking about the pollution of the Great Lakes. We know there are some major cities and industry that have been situated around the Great Lakes. Clearly there's a problem where you have economy, you have industry which may be a polluting industry, but it's fueling your economy at, at the same time. Here you have an issue whereby... If you attempt to reduce your dependence upon coal drastically, it's going to have a dislocating effect upon your economy. How do you go about changing it without causing economic dislocation? The problem is local or regional. The power plant is somewhere. On the macroeconomic level, it, it, it is not so important whether you have large power station located in Katowice or you have many distributed windmills in the system. You, you can cope with that or with the other. The problem of the change is problem of the regional change, that actually you are liquidating jobs that are located in certain place, and then you are creating jobs distributed in the other place. And that's what the people see. And they have to accept it, yes? They have to trust that they will have find jobs or their children will find jobs somewhere else. And this is the problem for the cold regions. And not only in Poland, in many other countries, yes, that uh, have been dependent for 200, 150 years on coal and steel industry. This transformation is ongoing in Poland since the end of the communism in 1990. This transformation is, all, is not painless, yes, because this creates the gap between the younger generation and older generation. 
because the world is changing very much and maybe the young young ones has to have to migrate even if they migrate only 100 kilometers this is not what their parents would like to see because very often they would like them to stay and basically replicate this type of living they had their parents had the grand-grandparents had, and so on, for 200 years. In hearing that, Connie, how you need to go through a painful period of change, is there something, I mean, you were talking about Denmark and how it got rid of certain very polluting industries. Is there something there of the Nordic experience which you think is transferable there in terms of limiting the disruption, the pain, the economic pain that's caused with undergoing such a transformation? Yeah, I think that it's always easy to see that we are here at A and we need to go to B and everybody can agree we need to go to B, but how to get there is a difficult thing. But there I think that to have a long-term strategy with some sort of milestones as you go, that is the way to do it in democracies and that's why it means a lot to start the journey. Of course, you cannot transform Silesia in five years. Nobody could do that. But you could say, where do we want to be by 2030? And where do we want to be by 2040? And then take it sort of stepwise. And then, of course, I think it means a lot. And that is a Danish experience, at least. It means a lot that there is a broad consensus in the political landscape accepting that this is where we need to go. Because if there's too much stop-go politics then it ends up being much more costly and much more frustrating for those who have to live through the transition. I agree, I perfectly agree that this is a problem of politics in my country very often and probably we can, we can learn from the Nordics, although it was not so frictionless in the past, in the, in the 80s especially. People don't trust that politics will deliver very quickly and that they will not change the curse in, in five years from now. Yeah, so this is always very hesitant, especially in the sectors that are connected to the climate industry, that are very you know, capital-intensive, influenced by the pure politics. So this is very different than consumer production goods. Yeah. So, so we've spoken about how politics can or can't possibly change the situation and the constraints upon politics. But Johan, let me turn to you. What about business? What do you think is the role of business, large business, large industry, in leading changes in approaches to the environment? Business is absolutely fundamental and should go hand in hand with science and policy in this whole transformation, not least because it's an exponential journey where we need to cut emissions by half every decade to have any chance of staying below two degrees Celsius. We have quite recently gone through one exercise, for example, in Sweden, which is, again, one of these uh, um, characters of the Nordic region being a small region, but so export-oriented and dependent on the global market. So we have uh, been gathering the CEOs of companies like Ericsson, Volvo, Scania, IKEA, you know, big export-dependent companies who are actually opening up to really consider putting sustainability as the framework for their business model. So moving, you know, taking the next step from not just a corporate social responsibility agenda, not only an environmental agenda, but really as a pathway to innovation and competitiveness within the core of the businesses. And I wouldn't say that the Nordics necessarily are absolutely at the frontier here. I think a lot is happening in the Silicon Valley and elsewhere. But it's interesting that this is something where... I can see that in the Nordics, you have relatively 
high degree of access between science, policy, and business to engage in such conversations. And I think that is really important because, like Connie says, it's about building these transitions over persistence over a long time. And that, that can occur in a small economy. So a collaboration, as it were, between those various aspects, between government, between society and between business. Now, I want to take this opportunity to invite some questions from our audience here. So, yes, there's a gentleman over there. Hi, my name is Jonas. I represent, I guess, the fashion industry. Johan, you were talking about the dynamics between the business and government. And I was curious to hear what governments can do and perhaps some examples from other industries how governments have been able to work directly with businesses or with sectors or industries in general to move ahead on the climate agenda. To start with, quite frankly, we've seen much too little of this. I think this is an area where business should now step up and put more pressure as well on the political system. I see a tendency towards businesses being willing to uh, have science-based targets, for example, just as Connie said, to have quantitative end dates for different uh, levels of emission, for example, to be a way of creating clear uh, leveling playing field for all sectors in a market where the political system should hear more clearly from the political system that that is expected from the political system and where we see that increasingly, and I would say that the Nordic regions is really leading here of, of setting, for example, in Sweden, we have a climate law today zero emissions by 2045, but also a parliamentary decision of 70% reduction of emissions by 2030 in the transport sector. And that means a lot in a country that has Scania and Volvo. So these are very clear decisions that totally, you know, rules investments in these business sectors. We have uh, regulations for the construction industry, which is very clear, and the construction business is now stepping back, saying we want even more ambitious targets because they feel that they can innovate much faster. So I think there's a ping pong game here that we start seeing. Sorry, Connie. If I could just say, for instance, building requirements is one example on, on efficiency. The circular economy now on the material side to put up sort of some targets and pull sort of new products faster to the market through public procurement, for instance, that could also be some. But one of the main issues is that the incumbents in industry they still tend to be not progressive enough. Then I tried to put it in a, in a nice manner. And one should not underestimate what that means to policymakers because it's a tough time to be a policymaker. And the incumbent interest still advocating so much for business as usual. That is dragging down the speed with which we are doing the needed transformation. And presumably also where there is consumer pressure upon companies, upon industries to show that they are being environmentally aware or, or doing something proactive on the issue? I think that we all have a tremendous responsibility, but also a tremendous power in what we choose to buy or not to buy and what kind of demands we, we put up. And I must say from the Danish example right now, we can see that suddenly we are heading for elections that be it right of center or left of center, suddenly none of the main politicians, they are not to talk about the climate transition because they are aware that not the least a young generation just expected from their policymakers. So it's, it's turning around, it's getting dangerous not to be serious around climate issues. We have limited time, yes sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Oliver Matikainen, Seymour's Uppsala University. Johan, you mentioned in uh, the beginning of the talk that the Nordic countries have managed to decouple environmental impact from 
economic development or economic growth. This is true if you look at domestic emissions, but if you look at consumption-based emissions, our emissions are not much different than they were 30 years ago. So we have, so to speak, exported our emissions to countries like China. This Nordic solution can, of course, not be replicated to other countries around the world. So my question is if you think that this, our high-carbon lifestyles and continued pursuit of economic growth is compatible with the tough climate action that needed to be taken to stay under two degrees. Thank you. No, you're right, but still not entirely right, if I may say so. I mean, you're absolutely right that if we include consumption, that the average Nordic emissions go up by, by a factor two from roughly five to 10 tons. You're absolutely right. But it's not really true to say that it's just been exporting our uh, emissions because it is also true that the Nordic region has been able to start decarbonizing within its own society. I mean, within the, the, the kind of borders of the country, industries and uh, heating and electricity and transport is reducing its emission within the borders. One reason why the per capita emissions go up is that we're open societies, we're in a globalized world and economic growth is rising. So we are consuming more than 30 years ago. We're simply consuming more per capita, which is a problem. So you're absolutely right that we need to drastically reduce consumption pressures and we need to recognize exactly your point that we are having a much larger carbon footprint than, than what is reported domestically. But I think we should still be proud or, or have as a reference point that we have been able to start decoupling economic growth within our countries. I mean, that's quite significant. But that economic growth go hand in hand with emissions is a problem. Just to conclude, Matthew, would you say that is someone like Poland prepared to accept slowing down economic growth in order to become more environmentally friendly? By this I mean, for example, to increase the price of, of power because it reduces its dependence upon coal? Well, I don't think so, yes. The, the, the catching up narrative is very, very strong in my country and this is obvious that people want to get richer and they want to live in the standard which is at the moment shared in the uh, Western societies. And Poland is growing very fast, something like 4-5% per year. But sometimes the same narrative that I've heard here is yes, that uh, from Swedish perspective, you can say that, okay, we decarbonized at home, but then we are exporting our emissions. Yeah? So this can be perceived like that. And then we should do something with it in order to avoid this problem. In Poland, we also were talking, especially policymakers, several years ago, were talking very vocally about uh, exporting emissions, but it was rather in a little bit different position. That, look, we can reduce our country, but then still, China is not. And if China is not, why should we? We are only 1% of the global emissions. And this is the problem of this game. How should we cooperate? Yes, we should learn from each other and follow the example. And the, the Nordic countries are a perfect example. But then, how should we do it together and to avoid this race? Yes, and this is very hard. And I don't think that the Nordic countries have found the solution. Nobody has found. Where we see other parts of the world where, for example, coal is advancing, the question then, as you say, rests: Why should Poland suffer under those circumstances? I think in answering this question, who are the Nordics to talk about sustainability, it seems that the Nordics do have a lot to say to developing and developed countries. We've heard from you, Johan, how they can affect change, giving the example of Sweden. And you, Connie, have also spoken about the changes that have been happening in Denmark. And Matchet, you've illustrated some of the problems that come with attempting to change and what it might mean for the economy. 
On that note, I'd like to thank our three guests for being here. Please don't forget to subscribe to Think Nordic wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find us on the Nordic Council of Ministers website. This podcast has been produced by Earshot Strategies. The producers are Anouk Millet. I'm Richard Myron. Thank you for listening. <laughs>